Good afternoon, everyone. Um, you can open up your Bible to Second Peter. We're going to be camping out there in the first chapter. Um, so keep it open there. Um, I know that as we really look at our society, maybe we can be a little discouraged at times. You know, we see what's going on in our, in our nation. We see, um, you know, maybe there's things that make you unhappy as a, as a U.S. citizen. Maybe, I mean, we've got the economy. We've got, um, you know, health care. You know, we've got now this week uh, the, um, the Defense of Marriage Act, you know, and marriage being redefined. I know that it's easy for us to be discouraged when we, when we hear things like this. And what I wanted us, what I wanted us to do today is I'm not saying that these issues aren't important, but I'm simply saying that you and I can get lost in critique in the world that we live in, in which we really fail to assess ourselves and examine ourselves. In fact, I'm sure there's some people in the world that love to read the newspaper because it makes them feel good about themselves. It's like, hey, that's not me. You know, like, and they could tell you everything wrong with the world. But if you were really to ask for a self-assessment, they wouldn't be able to do that. And this is where we're going to come to in this text in 2 Peter. And it's also Paul that says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, that as believers, we are to examine ourselves. Examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Test yourselves. So a teaching from Scripture that as believers, we are to be examining ourselves. Really, in reality, instead of, instead of being lost and critiquing the outside world and, and everything that's wrong around us, we're supposed to really ask ourselves, are we ourselves in the faith? Has the gospel of Jesus Christ gripped our hearts? And is, is it, are we living out of the realities based on that fact? And it's here in Second Peter that the, that the apostles give us some insight into this. First Peter, when you read First Peter, what you're going to see is First Peter has to do with persecution from outside of the church. And Second Peter is a little different, written by Peter, but he addresses false teaching that is arising within the church. And that is the same theme that is going on in Jude as well. They're both, um, they both addressing false teaching within the church. And we know that both Second Peter and Jude are known as the, the dark corners of the New Testament, which because, I mean, in those letters are some, some really difficult sayings which we have to wrestle with. We know that Second Peter was written to professing believers to combat the heresy that was going on in the church. And we know that the general audience was both Jew and Gentile, so, so the, the audience was a colorful one. It's a, it's, a, it's a letter that applies to all believers, in other words. We know that Peter is older, that it's, it's most likely prior to AD 68. We know that Peter was martyred, and it was before this. And we know that in this letter, Peter is giving many personal considerations. And I preached on 2 Peter 1, 1 through 5, really, and we're going we're to be tackling 5 through 11 today. And one of the things that I had addressed in the previous message was this concept of the gospel gap. And that concept is that, you know what, many believers understand that, okay, initially I'm saved. You know, I know that God forgives me for my sins and everything I've committed. And they also acknowledge that, you know what, there is a future reward that I'm going to be in eternity with Jesus Christ. But what's missing in a lot of people's lives is, is the here and now today. How does the gospel impact me today? And it's here that we are going to tackle this issue today, okay? We're going to come to Second Peter 1, and we're going to start at verse 3, and we're going to work our way down to verse 11, all right? You guys ready? Here we go. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. This divine bestowal, this divine gift that Peter is talking about, rightly says that it comes through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. In other words, Peter is clearly telling us that this has been a gracious gift given to us as believers, but through Jesus Christ. And this word granted, it carries a stronger meaning than merely just to give. It's to give lavishly. It's to give like just an abundant amount generously. Really describes royalty giving an enormous gift. And we know that this gift is both life and godliness that has been given to us through Jesus Christ. And notice the order here, all right? It's not godliness and life. It's what? Life and godliness. And it's critically, it's critically important that we acknowledge that. 
because this word for life is the exact opposite word, I mean, of death. Peter's saying that first God births the life in us, okay? He, he brings us to life. He regenerates us. He takes a dead corpse and he gives it life. And out of that life will spawn out godliness. And this term for godliness, all right, is, is, really, is really the word reverence. It's this inner reverence that we have for God from which flows proper attitude. Hence, you'll see passages like Ecclesiastes chapter 5 in which the writer is talking about this worshiper who is approaching the temple of God. And it tells him, hey, be, be not quick with your words. Let your words be few. I mean, be ready to listen because God is in heaven and you are on earth. It's this reverence. And that's really a, 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 really a marker of, of faith. Do you have reverence for God? Do you have a holy fear for God? Do you acknowledge him as sovereign creator and wonderful father? So it's first life, then godliness. And we know that the believers receive this gift through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. It wasn't through this emptying of themselves. It was through both a rational and spiritual response to the person and work of Jesus Christ, right? So we're not promoting some kind of like Eastern mysticism here, right? Where we're like, hey, you guys got to empty your cup, all right? And then, you know, empty your brains. No, 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 okay? It's a, it's a rational and spiritual response here. Verse 4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises <clears throat> so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. That phrase by which refers to what's said earlier of Jesus, his, his, his excellence, his virtue. In other words, it's its character. It is through that in, in the person of who he is that we're granted, that we're granted again. We're, we're just lavishly given. And Peter is including himself in that. He's saying it's been given to us. Peter's including himself in that. Hey, all of us as believers, this is what's been given to us. Is those that have been graciously given precious and very great promises. And why? So that through them, okay, is describing the result. In other words, here is the result of Jesus granting us his precious and awesome promise. Through who he is and what he has done, we now can become partakers of the divine nature. You may become is in the present tense, which means that it's a, it describes an ongoing process. That this is, this is going to be a process, all right? It's not like, hey, boom, we arrive. No, this is going to be, you know, it, it's justification happens immediately, and now sanctification begins. This process of, as Romans 8 tells us, being conformed and made into the image of Jesus. And we know that being partakers of the divine nature is twofold. It's both future and present. This will one day be fully realized in the future when Jesus returns. But the tense that it's in, it also signifies something that begins now. That you get to participate now. Fully, when Christ comes back, there's going to be a full realization. But right now, this moment, when you're saved, you participate in being a partaker in the divine nature. And it's not that we become some kind of demigod, all right? Or we cease be, being human. No, we've been given the Holy Spirit in us. We've been given, as, as Paul talks about in Colossians 1, now who is in us is Christ in us, the, the hope of glory. We've been given a new nature through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And it's through that now believers get to partake of this divine nature. We share in the nature because Christ is in us. We've been given his righteousness. We've been given his moral nature. And now because of that, guess what? We get to have divine communion with the creator of the heavens and the earth. Isn't that amazing? Another result here, having escaped. This phrase, having escaped, is directly tied to this phrase, you may become. So what happens is, when you become a divine partaker, the way that the sentence is structured is that this having escaped happens simultaneously as you may become. And it's important for us to understand this because it summarizes our past life as well as the fact that you and I have been delivered from it. That part of this divine gift, this divine bestowal includes our deliverance from the corruption of the world because of sinful desire. We've escaped it. 
And the moral corruption here is referring to the moral corruption of human nature. It depicts a world without God. In fact, it's the very opposite of the divine nature. In fact, it's a world in which um, it's just directly opposed to the things of God, in which it rejects the reign and rule of God. And it's driven by sinful desires. This term denotes desires or cravings that are self-centered and contrary to the will of God. In other words, it's just self-rule. God, we don't want your rule. We know better. And the source of the corruption is the evil passions of the human heart. And the way that Peter describes this is that this is a situation that is impossible to escape apart from the saving work of Jesus. And the result of us being saved is that you and I have escaped it. We've been delivered from it. Is that a good promise? One theologian comments, man becomes either regenerate or degenerate. Either his spiritual and moral powers are subject to slow decay and death, the wages of sin, or he rises to full participation in the divine. So this is the foundation for what follows in verses 5 through 11. And we had to go over this because one of the clear things that you'll see in the New Testament is, is, is these two tenses, okay? One is the indicative and what is, one is the imperative, all right? And when you read your Bibles, the New Testament, you have to keep these two things in mind, all right? The indicative has, has to do with, with an accomplished fact. And it also describes you, okay? Whereas the imperative has, it's, it's, it's a mood of command, right? Like, do this, right? And scripture, I mean, when, you read, when you read any of Paul's letters, and you've been hearing Brad preach through Romans, it's full of indicatives, all right? That really, the, the imperative doesn't come out till chapter 12, right? It's like, all, like full of in, all full of indicatives of what Christ has done for us on our behalf, all right? Now offer your bodies as living sacrifices, the imperatives. And you're going to see that all throughout scripture. I want to give you a couple examples. Look at Ephesians 4.32 going to be here on the screen. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is so important because as people, we come, you know, as pragmatic people, we come to the text and we're like, God, tell us what to do. And we see forgive. Okay, we're to be tender-hearted and we're to forgive. And we forget the second half of this as God in Christ forgave you. That's the indicative. This is something that has been an accomplished fact that because God in Christ has forgiven you, now Go and forgive. Your, your forgiveness and your tenderheartedness now has a basis on an accomplished fact. Indicatives and imperatives. You, and w- once you start reading scripture that way, it'll, it'll open the doors to more deeper understanding. We see what has God done and who he is. And now out of that, look at Ephesians. First three chapters, all indicative of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And then chapter four shifts, right? Therefore, now I urge you, to live in a manner worthy of the calling that you've received. So first three chapters, all orthodoxy, right belief, right? Four, five, and six, orthopraxy, right behavior. Indicatives, imperatives. And I think this is really important for us too because um, I had, the crisis moment that I had in my own life was um, First John. 1 John was a letter that the Lord used to shatter my life. I mean, to, I mean, just literally shattered my life. Because as I read 1 John, and I had professed to be a believer at that time, I was looking at all these qualities of a believer that, that John was listing. Some of the things he was saying were just, just really harsh. I mean, initial, my initial reaction, that those that left them were never of them. So that the people that were with you and they left you, they deserted the faith, Guess what? They were never saved in the first place. You know what? You know what's going to mark a believer's life, according to 1 John? is a genuine love for God and love for other people. What else is going to mark a believer? An acknowledgement of sin. And so forth and so forth. And John just, he just starts listing all these things. And I just realized, this is not a reality in my life. God, the way I'm living and the way that 1 John is presenting, there's just a contradiction. And God used that to really soften the hardness of my heart. And then I began to read Romans. And I was at a point where, you know, Psalm 19 says the law is perfect, reviving the soul. 
The law shows us our sin. It shows us our need of rescuing. And as I began to read Romans, things just started clicking. I started understanding the wrath of God, the love of God, the holiness of God, my sin, my fallenness, my constant need to, 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 be, to, be, to be king of my throne. And I began to see, wow, how glorious it is of, of all the things that Christ has done on our behalf. Brad has been preaching through adoption. Isn't that, isn't that just a beautiful indicative? Because of what Jesus has done, you and I get to be children of God. And now, because of that fact, go live in a manner worthy of the calling in which you have received. Amen? So let me begin by saying in this text in 2 Peter, there is tension. And there is tension because what we're seeing now is divine grace and human involvement. We're beginning to see Peter's going to begin to lay out for us what does it look like to, to partner with God? Like we, how, do we, how do we play a part in this gift of salvation and the life now? And there's tension there. And the awesome thing about this is, guess what? All of us, we get to play. God lets us play. Is that a good thing? God lets us participate in this, in his grand plan. We're going to go over this, all right? So remember that what follows here from, from here on on, verses 5 through 11, flows out of 3 through 4, okay? Out of the indicatives there. And we know that it's God that not only sees our justification through and through, he also sees our sanctification through and through. He's going to see us. He's going to see it through completion, this process of being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And it's all God. Verses 5 through 7, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Notice how Peter starts there with, for this very reason. What he's saying is, because of everything that was just said in verses 3 through 4, for this very reason, because of who Jesus is and what what he has done, because of the fact that he has made us partakers of the divine nature, because he has delivered and redeemed us. What Peter's saying here is that it's solely a result of what Jesus has done. And what he's saying is this, because of what Jesus Christ has done for all of us, Christians, we're going to grow. That is a matter of fact. As partakers of the divine nature, one of the marks of your life is that you're going to be growing. That's what Peter's saying, for this very reason. We're saying here, we look at here, and we we know that there's a call here to action, to rigorous action on our parts. Know that. And just to, I guess, maybe clear the mud here, maybe a proper marriage illustration would would help. There's a world of difference where the husband doubts the the love of his wife, and he labors to earn it. In a marriage where the husband rests in the certainty of his wife's love and takes pains joyfully not to live unworthily of it. Peter's point is God is for us with divine power. And of that we may be sure. Now in the confidence of that power, take pains not to live in an unworthy manner of it. Make every effort to supplement. Effort, that word, it denotes this quick movement or haste in the interest of a person or cause, as well as the emotions that follow. It's this, it's, in other words, it's to be characterized with quick movement that is full of passion, zeal. It's like something that is to be done wholeheartedly. It's not something passive. That word, make, this is the amazing thing about this. It literally means bringing in alongside of. So it pictures diligence um, on our part as something that we do, we bring. Okay, God has done it. Now we get to, we get to make, we get to bring in a- alongside of, we get to participate with what he's doing. Supplement, the name, this name's the work that must be diligently performed. And the task of Christian character development, believers must contribute what God rightly demands of them. Jesus says, take up your cross. We're to do it. We're to rightly give it. Notice that this list now starts with faith. And it ends with love. 
going to come in full culmination to, to love. But everything listed here, all right, it starts with faith. Everything listed flows from faith in Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done. And it's here that we're going to see Jesus' words um, in John 15 come to life. Where he says, you know, where he talks about abide. And he says that, you know, that if man remains in him, and he in him as well, that he's going to bear much fruit. And Peter is going to identify specific fruit right now that, that, that are marks of a person who has been called and elected. Marks of growth in the life of a believer. First thing, virtue. It's the same term used to describe Jesus Christ in verse 3. And it refers to moral excellence. The body of Christ should reflect its head. Amen? It also can refer to moral courage. And this courage being what inspires us to take serious action. We're to be people of moral excellence and virtue. Knowledge. It's a simple term in the Greek and it refers to practical knowledge. It enables its possessor to discern between right and wrong in facing the duties of life. We need courage, of course, but we also need to actually know the ways of God versus the ways of the world. And this knowledge stands over and against the knowledge of the false teachers in Peter's day. One theologian comments, the cure for false knowledge is not less knowledge, but a knowledge characterized by moral insight. There is to be a difference in our lives. We are to no longer live lives guided by the flesh. Because remember, we've escaped it. We've escaped it. We're not to be driven by our past life and the desires that, that drove our past life. Given a new nature now. Self-control points to the inner power to control one's own desires and cravings, the fruit resulting from true knowledge. In other words, it's a stance where we don't just say, Christians don't do this, Christians don't do that. No, the self-control now, it's a bold statement where we say, I need not to do that because I have all things in Christ. World of difference there. I need not versus don't do that, don't do this. I need not do it because his grace is sufficient. It's another thrust at the false teachers because you know why? They claimed liberty through knowledge which led them to license to sin. Second Peter chapter 2, you can read it sometime. So a lot of these things, Peter's opposing the false teachers because remember, false, teachers, false teaching is arising within the church. Steadfastness comes from two words, under and abide. What it pictures is the steadfastness and bearing up under a heavy load. It captures constancy and endurance. And it also, within this term, it has a forward-looking dimension in which the ability to focus on what is beyond the current pressures. You're able to look beyond your circumstances in steadfastness. And the perfect example of a person that did that is who? Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, in other words, we can say Jesus was very steadfast, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And brothers and sisters, we have to be steadfast in this world. I think some of us, um, I don't know if you remember, it's not the most appropriate movie, but um, The Usual Suspects. And one of the famous lines that Kevin Spacey says here is that the greatest trick that the, the devil pulled on the world was convincing the world that he didn't exist. And for a lot of us as Christians, we, we, we really don't live with the reality that we're in, a spirit, we're, we're in spiritual warfare. We really don't live with the reality that we have an enemy that is relentless in his pursuit to steal, kill, and destroy. And I'm not saying that we give Satan more credit than he deserves, all right? Christ is the victor. He's defeated sin and death, and it's going to come full culmination, okay? If you don't believe me, read Revelation sometime, right? But we also have to acknowledge that we do have an enemy. There are satanic forces at work against the saints. There are. And believers, we are to oppose those satanic forces of the world without and the enticement of the flesh within. It's twofold. And this does require steadfastness on our part. This was also important for the believers in Peter's days. Because some of the false teachers in 2 Peter 3, 3 to 4, they were doubting the return of Christ. He's not here yet. He's not coming back. And he's like, no, no, we've got to be steadfast. He's coming. Believers, be steadfast. Don't be duped. 
by the false teachings of this world. Godliness. Once again, it's that attitude of reverence that seeks to please God in all things. It desires a right relationship with God and men. It's the very thing that keeps your heart from getting hard towards people that oppose you and the things of God. It also keeps you from having an apathetic or emotionless attitude towards temptation. So now we move on to some other qualities that involve others. Isn't that interesting? If, if, if we just ended there, if Peter just ended there, all right, we, we could all be justified in, in being religious hermits. Like we could all like live a monastic life, go off and dig ourselves into a cave and say, okay, we're just going to work on these inner qualities. But then Peter adds two more that involves other people. <laughs> First one is brotherly affection. It's a phileo love. You know where the word Philadelphia comes from. It's the city of what? Brotherly love. It's this brotherly love toward the family of God. This is now a fruit of the Christian life. This is a huge marker in the Christian life, that if you are regenerated, you are saved, you are of the beloved, you are in Christ, you are now going to begin loving the family of God. You're going to now begin developing this brotherly affection towards the family of God. And it's a warm affection. And it's not this mere, hey, you're cool, I kind of like you feeling. It's one where believers outdo each other in awesome acts of kindness. Look at Galatians 6.10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And then Romans 13.8, you know, Paul talks about that the, really the only debt that we can't really ever repay is the ability to love one another. We're to keep paying that, all right? Never gets to zero. We're just to keep loving each other. We're to, we're to keep ministering to the household of God. It's the very thing in which the world would know that you and I are disciples of Jesus. John 13, 34 to 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And it was this kind of brotherly love that existed in the early church among the Christians. And it was this brotherly love that amazed the pagans around them. They were blown away that these group of believers from different racial, social, economic backgrounds could come together and just love on each other, and they were blown away. It was a great apologetic to, the, to our Savior and King. But keep in mind, brothers and sisters, this is something that needs to be cultivated. It takes effort on our part. Think about what's implied in the one another's of Scripture, especially from Colossians 3.13, bear with each other and forgive one another. What about Galatians 6? Carry each other's burdens. All right? It takes effort. It takes cultivation. It's work, and it gets messy at times. But we're to do it. Are you growing in this? Do you love the church? Do you love the family of God? Whenever I talk to people and they say, Chris, I'm cool with God. I just, I just hate Christians. I don't immediately doubt their salvation, but I, I point them to Scripture saying, you know what? If you love God, you would love the church because Jesus died for the church and Jesus loves the church. And is that a marker of your life? Do you have a disdain for Christians where you're like, ah, oh, or are you beginning to develop a love? Not that it's ooey-gooey perfect, all right? It, it gets messy, and sometimes we, you know, we do get annoyed and we, we have some negative words that come out of our mouths, but are we growing in a love? a brotherly affection for, for the saints. Love. This is where everything culminates. The greatest of Christian virtues, love. And this love is not restricted to fellow believers, but it's to be reached out and given to people everywhere. D. Edmund Hebert explains, the preceding term, brotherly kindness, implies personal warmth and affection. This word denotes a love that springs from intelligence and goodwill and purposefully seeks the welfare of the one loved. And it's a word that is constantly used in the New Testament to describe God's redeeming love. And this love doesn't condone or gloss over sin in the one loved, but it willingly engages in self-sacrificing action for the highest good, love. Now, as we look at that list, this isn't, this isn't meant to be taken as some kind of checklist, all right? Like where you're like, virtue, check. Godliness, check. 
Brotherly affection, check, 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 check. I'm cool. Not at all. It's never to be taken as something where I've arrived. Because not all of these qualities are equally developed in any one believer. But one of the things will be true that all of these in some form will be evident in the life of a mature believer. And, they, and these things also can't be compartmentalized and one quality selected to the disregard of others. Like, you know what? Give up godliness, but I don't need brotherly affection. No, Peter lists these out by saying, all of these will be evident in your life. Verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the Greek, there's really no if. It's rather implied that these qualities are yours as believers and that we are to be in the process of continually growing in all of these qualities. That word increasing, again, is in the present tense, which means it's an ongoing process. And the result is that we're growing in these qualities. And because we're growing in these qualities, we're not ineffective. We're not unfruitful. In fact, we're the opposite. We're effective and we're fruitful. This is a life abiding in Christ. Ineffective, that word, it literally means unworking. It's not a picture of one um, unavoidably unemployed, but it's a picture of one who avoids the labor in which he should assume responsibility. It's like, yeah, I know I should do that, but I'm not going to do it. Ineffective. Unfruitful, it pictures a tree that remains without fruit under the most favorable condition. Like, I mean, the soil's great, everything's good, it's being watered, there's sunlight, but it's unfruitful. But the result of all of this is that you and I are growing deeper in our relationship with Christ. And that word knowledge, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's not the same word used to describe one of the qualities. Remember I was saying that that was a simple term in the Greek for for knowledge, but rather this is the same word that is used in verses 2 and 3. And it implies an intimate and growing knowledge of someone that they already knew. So what is Peter saying? He's saying you're going to grow in knowing Jesus Christ more and more and more. You're going to get to know him better and better and better. You're going to become more intimate with, 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 with your Lord and Savior. And it's a knowledge of and not merely about a, about a person. And this is so important because some people claim to follow Christ. And in reality, they, they know a lot about Jesus, but they don't really know Jesus. To give you an example, I'm a diehard Lakers fan. And it's because um, Magic Johnson is my favorite player in the NBA universe. If someone asks me, do you know Magic Johnson? I said, yeah, I know Magic Johnson. Name, real name is Irvin Johnson Jr. I know that he's 6'9". I know that he led Michigan State to an NCAA title his sophomore year of, of, of college. And I know that he went right to the NBA, got drafted by the Lakers, and in his rookie year, he led the Lakers to an NBA championship. And it was epic because they were playing the, the Philadelphia 76ers, right? And the series is 3-2, to two, all right? And their all-star center, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, got injured. He sprained his ankle. And Magic Johnson normally plays point guard. And the coach is like, Magic, we're going to play you at center. He's like, okay, let's do this. 3-2. to two, And they're going to Philadelphia, all right? And, I mean, Dr. J is on the Philadelphia 76ers. So Magic goes, plays the game of a lifetime, all right? They win, and they win the championship. 42 points, 15 rebounds, 7 assists, and 3 steals. All right, one of four players to win an NCAA title, an NBA title in one year. Only rookie in the history of the NBA to ever win an NBA Finals MVP. So yeah, I know Magic Johnson. But then a follow-up question would be, yeah, but have you ever met Magic Johnson? Do you know him? Is he your friend? And there are some that fall into that category in which we know a lot about Jesus, but we don't really know him. This knowledge is both the root and the goal of the Christian life. One theologian comments, the best evidence that can be given of knowing the Lord is to follow on to know him. 
Verse 9, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Here Peter lists more incentive to grow. He to whom these things are present. This is the person that James describes, the person that claims to have faith, but no works. This person shows no evidence of a productive faith. In fact, Peter describes them as blind, describes the person's moral and spiritual condition. It's the absence of these spiritual qualities from his life that that shows that he has no eyes for them. Nearsighted. Another phrase for nearsighted here is short-sighted or myopic. The person is so short-sighted that he is indeed blind to the spiritual qualities under consideration because they're beyond his, the scope of his earthbound vision. Can't see it. And this person is in a place of spiritual blindness where they are unable to perceive the need for these spiritual realities. It is this person that has forgotten that they've been cleansed from their former sins. And forgotten, referring to a sort of spiritual amnesia. And you and I do that all the time. I remember one reading one theologian, and this, this comment just struck my heart. He says, one of the greatest insults that you can ever give to God is when you doubt his love. The greatest insult you can give to God is when you doubt his love. Right? Because what are we, what are we doing when we doubt the love of God? We're not looking to the cross. We're not looking to Jesus. We're looking in our circumstance. We've had gospel amnesia. We've forgotten who Christ is and what he's done. This is the person that has forgotten. Cleansed from his former sins, it refers to this person's public initiation into the Christian life through baptism. I mean, right, that baptism symbolized the the cleansing of the old life, pre-Christian sins, and the beginning of a new life. But do you see what happened here? This person's failure to, to cultivate the qualities of the new life has caused him to forget the implications of the event. He's totally just forgotten it. So this leads us to the question, is this a picture of a person who has lost their salvation? Or is it a picture of a converted but unregenerated person who failed to live up to their baptismal commitment? This issue has been going on and discussed and debated among Christian thinkers since earliest of times. But it's here, though, that through the larger context of the letter that we see that Peter is referring in verse 9 to the false teachers. They have professed to receive the saving gospel, but yet continue to live in open sin. It's like, hey, we're saved. We can live in open sin now. In reality, what have they done? They've forgotten that they were cleansed from their former sins. And they're blind to the other qualities that Peter lists. <coughs> so, brothers and sisters, let this be a solemn warning for us all. Let us all ask ourselves, what marks our lives? When we look at our lives, what marks it? Is it one of perpetual spiritual amnesia? Verse 10. Almost done here. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Right, so Peter shifts from verse 9, verse 10, and uses the word brothers. He's addressing the believers now. And he urges them to live out of the reality of them possessing the qualities and growing and becoming effective and becoming fruitful as they abide in Christ. And out of this, as opposed to what was described in verse 9, they're to be diligent. Remember, they're to be zealous. They're to be passionate. They're to be eager. And this word also carries a sense of urgency. They were to act now. Safeguard what was described in verse 9. So, by telling the believers to be all the more diligent to confirm their calling and election, Peter, okay, please understand this. Peter isn't just telling the believers to merely engage in more strenuous activity. You know, he's not saying, hey, just pump more weights and add more weights and do this, okay? He's rather concerned about their personal assurance that they are the called and chosen of God. Peter is telling them to take personal ownership of this. And this is also in the present tense. Keep doing it. Keep confirming your calling and election. Keep examining yourself. And that term your, it's interesting. 
It makes this an individual matter. No one else can do this for you. This is now between you and God. Confirm your calling and election. No one else can do it. Not grandma, not grandpa. You've got to do it. Now, this doesn't mean that our efforts can make the divine call and election more certain. Rather, we must base our personal assurance on the appropriate evidence in our lives. Am I growing in these qualities? Not am I perfect. Remember, this isn't a checklist, or it's not even a list to declare that we've arrived. Rather, it's a descriptor of genuine marks of growth in the life of a believer who has been given the defined bestowal. Calling and election. Okay, we're not going to dive deep into this, and I know Brad is preaching through Romans 8. He'll get there, all right? But calling and election, Peter ties them together, and they're intimately tied in terms of our salvation. Chronologically, we know that divine election precedes the call. Romans 8, 30, and those whom he predestined, see, first election, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And Peter's order here is in accord with with his concern for our certainty of the divine initiative in our salvation. Think about this. Our consciousness of God's calling, right, has been given or mediated to us through the preaching of the gospel. And only after we respond to his call can we begin to understand his election. And we see that in Ephesians 1 through 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And what's interesting as well is that our election becomes a certainty to us us only after we've experienced the transforming call. Get that from 2 Thessalonians 13 through 14. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And trust me, I know there's tension all over that, okay? One theologian, Michael Green, sums it up well. He says, make your calling and election sure is an appeal that goes to the heart of the paradox of election and free will. The New Testament characteristically makes room for both without attempting to resolve the apparent antinomy. So here... Election comes from God alone, but man's behavior is the proof or disproof of it. John Calvin explained that when Peter was saying this, that Peter possibly could have been um, talking about the false teachers because the false teachers were claiming, you know what? We're predestined to righteousness, so we're going to live however we want to live. So he's saying confirm your calling and election based on those qualities. And perhaps folks do this today, right? I prayed the prayer. I asked Jesus into my heart. I signed the card. I jumped into the water. I got my ticket out of hell, and I got a ticket into heaven. But yet in the interim, the gospel has no bearing in their life. Very similar to that. Confirm your calling and election. 10 and 11, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So two results of spiritual growth. The first one relates to the present, and the second relates to the future of when Christ will return. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. In other words, a flourishing spiritual life is the safeguard against failure. It's here that there remains a connection between divine grace and human activity, this participation with God and what he's doing. And in other words, we're to keep practicing these qualities, right? Remember, it's not a checklist. No, it's, we're to look at these qualities and say, we still got to grow. We're going to keep going. We're going to be diligent. We're going to make every effort to grow in these qualities. We're to, pers- uh, we're to persevere. We're to grow in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. And this is a mark of a genuine believer. And the result is that you will never fall. And Peter is is referring to a fall that is permanent, not an occasional slip-up. It refers to a fall in which it's final and there's no arising. He's not saying that we as believers will never sin, but rather that we'll be kept from an irretrievable fall. In other words, as believers, we're going to make the spiritual journey. We're going to arrive. 
because ultimately it's part of that divine bestowal that is rooted on what Jesus Christ has done. And it's in this way that we'll be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray that one of the things that you would know, Jesus paved the way. He's what the scriptures call the trailblazer, the the author and finisher of our faith. He's paved the way. And he says, this is the way into the kingdom. Jesus says, my way. Follow me into the kingdom. And we're to simply trust and obey. And as we talk about the divine grace and, 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 and human involvement, I think a quote will give you some good insight. Dallas Willard states, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Grace, you know, does not just have to do with, for, with forgiveness of sins alone. The gospel is not opposed to good works. Amen? The gospel is not opposed to good works, all right? The gospel is opposed when we use our good works for our justification or that we try to use them as say, God, look at me. Look at me. I'm good. That's when it becomes an enemy of the gospel. But it's here that Peter is making this, this teaching, this fundamental truth that the gospel is really the seedbed of which all our good works flow out of. And we're to make every effort to supplement our faith with all of those qualities. Amen? And brothers and sisters, you and I, we're called to rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And it's from that position that you and I are able to work. We don't work for that rest. We have the rest. And now knowing that, now knowing all the indicatives, it's from this position that you and I can be empowered by grace to make every effort. And as you look at these qualities, this is what I'm praying. I'm praying that you're not, um, that you don't just feel condemned. Maybe, you know, you look at this list and you're like, wow, I've got a long ways to go. As I'm studying this text, that's all I could think about. God, I have a long ways to go. So I pray one, first and foremost, if that's what you're thinking, amen. Because this list is really meant to humble us too. It's meant to really tell us that we never arrive, but we're to be growing. And it's also to encourage us because when you look at this list of qualities, I'm sure that if you and I were to look at our lives, we would see growth. Yeah, God, I'm not perfect in godliness, but, but five years ago, wow. <laughs> We've been doing some growing there. God, there's some issues in my life in which self-control needs to be exercised. But man, God, you've set me free from so many different things. And where I, I can firmly stand and say, I need not those things anymore because of what you've done, Jesus. So I'm praying, I'm praying that what would be communicated to you is one, is that this would bring us to a humble posture one of humility, and one of us coming to Christ. And maybe for some of you, you're looking at this list and you're like, wow, none of these are evident in my life. And I'm praying that instead of repelling you away from God, that you would do what Jesus said in Mark 1, 14, 15. Repent and believe in the gospel. Because we know how awesome and how big the Father's love is, right? We know that the Father's banqueting table is open to all. We know that Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners, came and ate with sinners and dined with them and ministered to them. We know that he came for the sick. So I'm praying that instead of this repelling you, that you would come before him in repentance and belief in the gospel. I'm going to have the praise team come up. We're going to close with these questions, all right? I just want you to just think to yourself here. First question here is, are you making every effort towards moral excellence? Another question, are you making every effort to increase your knowledge of God's character and his will? Are you making every effort to strengthen your power of self-control? Are you making every effort to enlarge your capacity for patience? 
Are you making every effort to cultivate godliness, to develop a heart for God? Are you making every effort to grow warm in your affection for your fellow believers? Are you making every effort to stir up love in your will for the person you dislike the most? And if these things are in you and increasing, you will not be fruitless. You will never stumble. You will enter the eternal kingdom of Christ. If these things are not your earnest concern, then it's because you have shut your eyes to the beauty of God's promises and have forgotten the humble exhilaration of being forgiven and of the beloved. Let us pray. God, thank you for who you are and what you've done. Thank you for the the many indicatives that are in Scripture that describe things that you have done on our behalf. And God, I'm just praying that as we've um, looked at 2 Peter together, Lord, that our hearts have been stirred. And God, we know, we know that we don't love you as we should. And we thank you, Lord, that it's, it's not by what we do that we earn salvation. It's solely based on what you've done. Because that you have birthed a life, now you call us to action. You, you have given the greatest gift we could ever have, and that's yourself. And if Christ, the hope of glory, is in us, we know that these qualities are going to be are going to grow in us as well. We know that you are the perfect example of every one of these qualities. And God, just come before you, and I know, as well as many others, that, Lord, we know that we have much room to grow, and we admit that. And we're asking you to keep working in our lives as you conform us into the image of your Son. And we also praise you for the work that you're already doing in our lives. So I know that we, that we can look at our lives and we can see growth. And we see that as the evidence of your grace in our lives. It's not because of us. It's because you're seeing your process of sanctification through and through. And we thank you for that, God. And God, we as believers want to make every effort to do, um, Lord, just to be diligent, God. And to follow hard after you, God. Help us, Lord. Restore our passion, God. You know, sometimes even in my own life, I could be more passionate about basketball than following you, God. Forgive me for that, Lord. I'm praying that in all of us, you would just stir that passion in which we're just undignified for you, God. And thank you for your grace and your patience, God. Thank you that you're alive and well, working today. We love you, Lord, and our lives are yours to command. In Christ's name I pray, amen.